with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here saying hello and also bringing you a little extra information than is usual ahead of my chat with the brilliant Dr. Jessica Taylor about her new book, Sexy But Psycho, how the patriarchy uses women's trauma against them. I mean, what a title and what a book, an uncompromising challenge to the psychiatric labelling and medicalisation of women and girls. Challenging contemporary psychiatry, which sees and sells itself as a force for good, is a bold move. But there is good reason for Jess's interrogation of a medical institution that has a long old history of pathologising and sexualising women and girls. As the always excellent journalist Victoria Smith said in a recent piece for The Critic, no one is ever in any doubt about psychiatry's shameful past. Fathers institutionalising wayward daughters, husbands locking up inconvenient wives, brains destroyed for being too female, too black, too gay. And while we're told to think about those errors as something very much in the past, a little thinking shows, well, not so much really. We might not have lobotomies anymore, thank goodness, but we do have high strength medications that perform pretty much the same function. It's a complicated and emotional subject with a lot of people invested in maintaining the status quo and Sexy But Psycho is huge food for thought and a push for seismic change engagingly written. I think Jess raises some really interesting questions with answers that fly in the face of everything I thought I knew and probably you think you know too but she backs them up with really compelling, meticulous research and evidence, including testimonials from women whose lives have been destroyed by psychiatry, diagnoses of mental illness and enforced medicalisation, and also testimonies from fellow mental health professionals. And so we chat about why Freud needs to get in the bin, the enormous amount of damage caused by pathologising women, the straight line between she's a witch and borderline and emotionally unstable personality disorders, false comfort in diagnosis, why everyone should be cautious when seeking mental health diagnoses and the huge pros of a trauma-informed response to mental health. But before I hand you over to Jess, I'm going to... Well, hand you over to Jess with this from page 76 of Sexy But Psycho. As of today, being female is widely reported as correlating with almost every mental disorder in the DSMV. Women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression, anxiety and somatic disorders. They are also more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, general anxiety disorder, panic disorder, phobias, suicide ideation and attempts, postpartum depression and psychosis, eating disorders and PTSD. Women are also much more likely to be diagnosed with multiple psychiatric disorders at one time. It's as if no one has ever been able to join the dots. Why have we not considered that women are living in a patriarchy which oppresses, objectifies, sexualizes, controls, humiliates and discriminates against them on a daily basis? Why are we ignoring the most obvious explanation that women and girls exist in an environment which causes them serious harm? And why have we reframed the global, common and collective trauma of women and girls as hundreds of man-made misogynistic psychiatric disorders which reside inside the brains of mentally disordered women and girls? Who could possibly benefit from that, I ponder? Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by one of my very favourite working class feminist authors, Dr Jessica Taylor. Jess, hello. Hiya, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now look, right... Let's cut to the chase. I read your latest book, Sexy But Psycho, How the Patriarchy Uses Women's Trauma Against Them, basically looking like the emoji with an exploded brain, because <laughs> mind blown. 
as a woman put on antidepressants really early in my life and because that was on my medical record I've consistently had physical problems dismissed as part of my depression and struggled to get life insurance among other shit so yeah uh, you you touched a nerve (laughs) um before we get to the meat of the book and the frankly psychotic in itself pathologizing of women and girls by psychiatry can we quickly talk about how depression being a chemical imbalance in the brain is absolute horseshit because this is the bit where I was just like sorry what now I mean it's financially rewarding horseshit for Big Pharma given that NHS stats from 2017 show 67.5 million antidepressant prescriptions a year in England and it's all bollocks yeah so when I talk about this publicly I think people think I'm making this up because there has never really been an official retraction of that myth the chemical imbalance myth you know that depression and anxiety and things like that are actually caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain that started around the 1950s and it came from studies in animals observation studies there was a theory that was suggested that maybe the rats were behaving in a particular way because they had a brain chemical imbalance it never really moved on from being just a hypothetical you know like a theory there was quite a lot of studies that were done suggesting oh maybe it's serotonin maybe it's dopamine maybe it's melanin all of these different things that it could be like cortisol and stuff like that and i think the best way to explain it is that first of all that's never been proven ever and second of all it's actually been retracted by the royal college for psychiatry the american psychiatric association the psychiatric times talks about the fact that it's a myth they've even got an article that's entitled the brain chemistry imbalance myth Lots of leading psychiatrists from Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge say that it was nothing more than a theory and that it's bad science and that it, no, and you know, to the point where there's quotes, isn't there, in the book that leading professors and academics just said, well, nobody really believes this to be true. It was just a theory. <laughs> but that's not what happened, is it? So pharmaceutical companies learned very quickly that you could market that you could sell people pills and tell them it was changing the brain chemical imbalance that they supposedly had when you just take a step back just for a moment and consider how many people have gone to their gp gone to their doctor's office and said i'm feeling really bad and i'm really stressed i'm not sleeping properly i'm not eating properly i I, you know this is really getting me down now and they've sort of gone you know it sounds like you've got depression it's caused by a brain chemical imbalance of serotonin so we're going to give you these serotonin reuptake inhibitors like these so-called antidepressants because that's a marketing term too right it's not it's not real and so people walk away from their doctors believing they have a brain chemistry imbalance but the thing is there's no tests nobody's proven to you that you have a brain chemistry imbalance nobody's proven to anybody and that's it's so interesting because it's almost got to the point where it's so repeated and so accepted that nobody even questions it. So, you know, if you went to your doctor and just sort of said, oh, um, I think there might be something wrong. And then the doctor was like, yeah, you're diabetic. You would be like, how do you know that without testing my blood? How do you know that without <laughs> checking anything? And, you know, you would be like, well, can I have the tests that show whether I'm diabetic or not? And then the doctor would be like, hmm, yes, that's a good idea. We should probably test you. And then they would test you and find out whether you're diabetic or not. Whereas with mental health, especially like depression and stuff, there are no tests. So people that say, oh, I have a brain chemistry imbalance, I can guarantee you that none of them have actually had any kind of test because there isn't one that exists. You can't have a blood test for depression. You can't have urine analysis for depression. You can't have a scan for depression. And you certainly cannot have neurotransmitters in the brain measured and tested 
yeah it's basically a huge societal myth it's one of those weird things that happen sometimes where myths are repeated so many times that they become fact I guess one of the things that really interests me is where is the accountability for those organizations and those companies you know the American Psychiatric Association did say for several decades that there could be a brain chemistry imbalance so did the Royal College for Psychiatry and you know so did huge pharmaceutical companies that are still doing it to sell products antidepressants and so on So where is the accountability for them to retract and to say to the public, um, that's not true? Like, where is that? It's not there. And while listeners, maybe press pause while you're reeling from that information, because it absolutely staggered me, and then come back and let's talk about Sexy But Psycho, because this is a book that's really close to your heart, isn't it, Jess? Can you tell me about the gloriously titled Sexy But Psycho and how it came about? Sexy But Psycho is probably the most important thing I'll ever write, which is probably bad news for my publishers who I've signed multiple <laughs> deals with. <laughs> it's all downhill from here, folks. Um, but no, it's, it's, I think it is. It's, it's something that has burned away inside me for so long, and I've been desperate to write something and put it out just to the public for everybody to be able to read about this issue, that psychiatry and the mental health movement and even my own discipline, psychology, has just been oppressing and harming women and girls for over a century and that it's very successful and everybody has been suckered into it Mm -hmm. I mean it's close to my heart for so many reasons like the first is that I've been working with women and girls who've been subjected to violence abuse and trauma for 12 years this year and that means thousands and thousands of cases of you know little girls from two or three years old all the way through to like women in their 80s and their 90s the vast majority of them at one point or another have told me that they've been told they have a personality disorder or a mental illness or they're psychotic or they're bipolar or they're depressed or they're anxious they've got OCD or whatever it is and I'm only 31 and I have had enough like I'm sick of hearing it I'm sick of women being told that they're ill when they you know are saying oh you know this happened to me and then this happened to me and I've had all of this aggro and stress and shit going in my life and then the doctors told me it's me you know I have a personality disorder I need to take these pills every day and I just want it to change I need it to change I can't I don't think I can stay doing this job if this doesn't change like Mm -hmm. I am it's disgusting I, I feel like we are gaslighting millions of women and girls every year into thinking that they've got mental illnesses that they don't have I've also been on the receiving end of pathologization and that's a new word to a lot of people they don't know what that means like you know a lot of people that have reviewed the book and read it already are sort of saying god I'd never even I don't even know how to pronounce that word I had to practice how to pronounce it yeah I like most people do and I did too but pathologization is the process of taking a behavior or a characteristic or something and suggesting that it's actually abnormal so psychologically abnormal or medically abnormal and that it's disordered in some way so that is the process of pathologizing something or someone and I've been on the receiving end of that as a woman and as a professional, but I've also worked thousands and thousands of cases where it is so repetitive. It's like Groundhog Day and I just want it to end. I mean, and you cover this in the book, but the notion that whatever, whatever is happening to a woman, she's probably mad, is deeply embedded in society and all of its systems. This shit has been used to pathologise, subjugate and diminish women for centuries. And what you draw is a pretty much straight line from witches to wandering wombs to today's version, which is personality disorders. Yeah, yeah, it is. To me, it's a straight line. I got, like, it's so obvious. 
I don't think it's even been hidden. I don't think anybody's even attempted to hide the connections. It's just that people either haven't been paying attention or what's more likely is that authority is powerful. And if you're told as the general public, oh, this is what it means and you don't know what you're talking about. You're not a doctor, so you don't know. You're not an academic, you don't know. People believe it, you know? Mm -hmm. And the witches, like, what you're really talking about when you talk about the witch trials is now seen as fun. Like, people dress up as witches for Halloween and it's all really fun and it's cool and isn't that exciting and <laughs> witches are so funny. But the reality of the witch trials was that anywhere between 600,000 and a million women and girls were murdered on the basis that they didn't conform. So if they read too much or they were too opinionated, they knew too much about how to grow crops. They knew too much about female biology. Mm -hmm. Like they were problematic women and girls. So they got rid of them. The fastest way to get rid of them back then because of the way the church had sort of encouraged people to do it was to accuse her of being a witch. And there was no way out of an accusation of being a witch. If you were caught and you were put on trial uh, of being a witch you would always die there was there was no way you could be found innocent of being a witch you could only die because the trials were that they were going to burn you or hang you or drown you and if you escape then you're a witch and if you die you die a christian death and you die in honor so like obviously you, if you burn a woman that says she's going to die and obviously if you drown a woman at the bottom of a river she's going to die so like what you actually saw there they're not real trials they were just murder yeah um, that, were, that looked like trials right so what's so interesting about that when you follow that through is that when the witch trials ended and it became illegal to try women as a witch and to suggest they're a witch and all that sort of stuff the church didn't back off they just created asylums and they put women in the asylums and locked them up and originally the belief was if you were mentally ill as a woman or a girl you had to find god convert to christianity and marry a man and that that would cure you uh, and you would then be a better woman or a better girl right and so if you then follow that through we've never really moved past that i mean you're only talking less than 100 years ago we were still locking women and girls up in insane asylums and telling them that they had, like you said, wandering womb syndrome, hysteria, that their uterus was detaching, floating around their body, attacking their brain and their organs. Obviously. And that's why they were crazy. And, you know, that led to tens of thousands of women and girls having non-consenting full hysterectomies. They believed that if they did mass womb extractions on women and girls, they'd be more docile and compliant and that they would be less crazy or whatever it was. All of that is linked because now what we have, as you say, like personality disorder, is the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder is almost word for word identical to the diagnostic criteria for hysteria or wandering womb syndrome, which now doesn't exist because psychiatrists were like, oh, hang on a minute, that sounds like a load of shit. <laughs> Maybe it's something else, but then they've moved to something else that's a load of bollocks. So we're not really making any progress, and women and girls are still getting the rough end of the deal because you're much more likely as female to be diagnosed with every single mental illness in the DSM. And you are also much more likely as female to be diagnosed simultaneously with three or more disorders, which is not common in men and boys. It's not that psychiatric diagnosis is uncommon in men and boys, but it's just that they don't tend to get the same ones as women and girls, and you don't tend to get multiple at once. So women are still the most oppressed group. 
And indeed, the present day examples you offer of how psychiatry is wholly incompatible with feminism, with with women's liberation, are really fucking convincing. And each one gets an in-depth chapter in Sexy But Psycho. But just for the listeners, here are a few. Women and girls harmed by sexual violence being told their signs of trauma reveal them to have personality disorders. Abused women being encouraged to get diagnostic labels in order to access support and then having those diagnoses used to discredit their testimonies. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this without screaming. Women's reports of violence and abuse being treated as evidence that they are delusional, particularly if they've already got those histories of being labelled mentally ill. Women's physical ailments being treated as emotional. And it might seem to listeners that the easiest thing for women to do to stop this is to just say no. But there are innumerable times where psychiatry and medicalization is presented as a choice, but it's absolutely not a choice, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most obvious examples of that is where, as, as you just said, you have to accept a psychiatric diagnosis in order to access support. So there are certain NHS services that will only accept your referral if you need therapy or if you need help after you've been abused or raped or you've been through something really traumatic in your life, they will only accept your referral if you have a specific psychiatric diagnosis. And if you refuse the diagnosis, you can't get into the service. And then similarly, there are lots of services out there, not just NHS, private and charitable, that argue that you must be on antidepressants before they'll start your therapy. So they'll argue that that's the only thing that will make you stable enough to get through the therapy, which there's no evidence for. So that's highly contested. So the fact that there are services that sort of go, well, we'll refer you for therapy, but first what you need to do is you need to go on the antidepressants, you need to take them for two or three months, and then when you're stable enough, we'll refer you for therapy. That's not fair. That's blackmail. So somebody's come to you and said, like, I really need to talk to somebody about this thing that happened to me. And they're like, okay, take the pills and then we'll refer you. That's not ethical. And in some of the testimonies that are in in the book, like there'll be women who have gone to access this stuff. So they do, they they desperately want the support. So they take the pills. And then in their reports, they're not having stuff that happened to them written down and recorded. And they're also being described as like difficult because they sleep a lot or they're not reacting in a way that someone who wasn't on loads of fucking pills would react. Yeah, there's, for example, Brianna's case study in Sexy But Psycho, where she has repeatedly told the the psychiatrist and the nurses that she's been raped, that her partner is abusive, that she's terrified of him, and that he's stalking her, and he comes to the house with a GoPro, and he keeps ringing the police and deliberately doing safe and well checks on her, sending the police to her house just to intimidate her, under the false pretenses that he's worried about her, and like all of these things, right? but none of it's on her record. So when she got her records and she, and she let me read them, uh, she got her medical records and her mental health records, it just says things like had argument with spouse or is living separately from spouse at the moment due to her own mood issues. Like, And she's like, that's not what I said. I told them that I'd had to run away because he beat me up. Why is it not on the records unless that professional was deliberately trying to minimise what was actually happening to Mm -hmm. her. There's parts of her case study where she has clearly said to them, I'm pregnant, I'm scared of him, he does this to me, he's done that to me. And then they've just written, has had verbal altercation with spouse. That's not what she said. So, you know, her records are wrong. And that's terrifying for her and for all other women that know that their records are wrong too, because how do you get them rectified? Like, that's somebody's opinion, that's somebody's... Somebody has listened to you tell the truth about what's happened and then they've written their own version of events. 
how can you even change them or check them? Well, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, which is once you've been accused of being a witch, you can't get rid of that accusation unless you die, an innocent yeah. Christian woman. And it's it's the same. Once you've been told you're mentally ill, fighting that diagnosis just makes you look more mentally ill or just gets the medication upped. It's very much a no-win situation. Yeah, the more you say you're not crazy, the crazier you are. And that's taken as more evidence that you're actually crazier than you already were diagnosed to be. And that's because they use things like, oh, she's in denial about her diagnosis or she's refusing treatment or she's not engaging. She's not accepting reality. The problem is with that is, as you say, once you've been described in some way as delusional or mentally ill, everything you do from that moment will be reframed as part of the delusion or the mental illness so if you started to write journals to try and process all of your shit that's happened to you they could be like oh she obsessively writes in her journal and it's part of the obsession in her disorder you're like no it's not i'm trying to and then like she's in denial about the obsession (laughs) do you know what i mean like you can't get out of it once you're in it no that's something that needs to change like how can a system be so subjective that you can never get out of it there's a really really key example and it's it's to do with stockholm syndrome what we all know as stockholm syndrome and i know you would argue with that label and and rightly so having read your book i agree with you but it's so well known it's so ingrained and that male psychiatrist who came up with stockholm syndrome about a woman who had been kidnapped and held hostage and apparently got feelings for her kidnapper and she said that's not what it was that's wrong that diagnosis of me from someone who has never met me is wrong and he just said what she said is part of the syndrome oh yeah, my did, god yeah. <laughs> yeah he did it's incredible isn't it how far that even went the fact that some dude basically distance diagnosed made up a syndrome just just made it up wrote about it in the press and now it's common language mm. even like you know, even the lay person on the street, if you were like, oh, it's Stockholm Syndrome, they'd be like, yeah. How did that happen? I talk about this with my wife quite a lot, that it's amazing how much men have got away with where they just talk a load of shit and everyone goes, mm, yes, that must be right. And then like a hundred years later, everybody just thinks that's a real thing. But it's never scrutinised in the same way as women's words are. What If a woman was to just make something up and go, oh, I think it's this social phenomenon and I'm going to write a load of articles about it, that'll be real, that would get torn to shreds. But philosophers psychiatrists even just commentators authors scholars men i mean look at freud look at the state of things that sigmund freud said (laughs) yeah like you know and now when i did my undergraduate degree years ago that was the first module in my psychology degree was like let's learn about the father of psychology that dude was off his face on coke and (laughs) believed that everybody wanted to fuck their mom i'm sorry but that, that man's not the father of psychology he wrote several books on introspection which he argued was a scientific technique it basically was just opinion it was just his opinion it was just what he thought about some stuff and he hated his mom so he wrote an entire book not only suggesting that he hated his mom but also everybody hates their mom and that that's made him feel normal and now people talk about things like projection or they're just projecting Freud made that up, projection. Freud made that up, arguing that you project your issues onto other people that you won't address, which is ironic from a man who wrote a book about wanting to shag his mum and made out he was everybody else. (laughs) Oh, God, I kind of (laughs) want to do a mic drop end of interview, but I've still got stuff to talk to you about. (laughs)
think because as we're discussing, it is so ingrained, all of this stuff is so ingrained in society that a lot of women find comfort in diagnosis. They they seek comfort now in diagnosis and being able to put a label on what's wrong in inverted commas with them. Particularly right now when we seem to be in a time where disorder is identity. Yeah, I agree with that. We're having lots of conversations right now about identity politics. There's a real gap in the conversation because one of the most pervasive forms of identity politics at the moment is disorder. Wanting to identify with mental disorders Mm. and feeling that it validates their identity and it validates how they feel about the world or themselves or other people. And that worries me because the thing is, you might feel validated by it, but I guarantee you it'll be used to discriminate against you sooner or later, maybe for the rest of your life. The other thing that worries me about it is that psychiatry is very white and Western and elite and middle class. So if you fit any of the so-called diagnostic criteria for a psychiatric disorder, there's probably absolutely nothing wrong with you at all. But those diagnostic criteria were dreamt up. I mean, there's no scientific rigor at all or rationale behind those criteria. They're made up, again, by a group of men that sit around a table and vote whose disorder gets into the DSM this time. And, like, bargain with each other. They do, they do. It's a a voting process, so they'll sort of go, well, um, I want my disorder that I've named in the DSM, and uh, you can have yours if I can have mine. And, like, it's, it's not scientific... What worries me about all of this is that one of the things that I I think has happened is that women have been fed this lie that women are underdiagnosed with ADHD, they're underdiagnosed with autism, and it's not fair, and that there should be more diagnosis of women with ADHD and autism. That's terrifying to me, because those were the only two diagnoses left in the TSM that women didn't dominate in terms of being diagnosed with them. They were the only two categories left where men were more likely to get the diagnosis and then in some amazing way again there has been this push I don't know where exactly from that women should seek those diagnoses and that women are in some way being oppressed by not getting those diagnoses I don't feel like that at all my advice would be if you're a woman or you've got daughters keep them the fuck away from psychiatry mental health medication and listen to them and talk to them and ask them what's happening and how they feel and how you can solve it they're not mentally ill and you know once that's on their file they'll never get it off but I think part of it is that you're right I talk to women all the time that sort of go well I feel like this and this happens I've got this behavior and this and this and I looked it up on the internet and it's come up that I think you know I'm bipolar and and it explains so much for me that I'm bipolar and and now I feel like it's a name it's something I can name I can call it something it's not just that I'm crazy it's a thing but that for me like I I totally get that but I, I think that's contradictory because nobody thought that they were crazy before but the problem is now you've got a psychiatric disorder diagnosis of bipolar so you're going to be discriminated against when you go to your doctor you're going to be discriminated against if you try and get a job try and go in the police force or you want to work in frontline services in some way you might be discriminated against with life insurance health insurance that is not a helpful diagnosis you would have been better off processing those behavioral differences you think you have or psychological differences you think you have your experiences and your emotions and going and figuring them out with a therapist or with somebody you trust and not submitting yourself to psychiatric assessment there's nothing good that comes from it but i do think that it makes people feel validated that that they have a thing that it's a term it's an illness you know 
like they can be fixed. And the, the really, really interesting point that you bring up a couple of times in Sexy But Psycho, particularly around personality disorders, is, okay, for something to be a disorder, there has to be a normal. What the fuck is a normal yeah. personality? Like, yeah, we're I'd not say like a, a five, that's it, that's you for life. It, they evolve, we change. We we have the phrase, that was really out of character. And it's like, well, that's because personality isn't set. Yeah, exactly. So now this is something that most people are taught and in general public that your personality like you say is static it's and it's set and that's how you are for the rest of your life and when I was doing my undergraduate degree that's what we were taught that people have personality types and it creates like a blueprint for the rest of their life it wasn't until I did my PhD and I met an expert psychometrician when I was doing my advanced psychometric training and he used the personality diagnostic questionnaire to prove that it was a load of shit and (laughs) I just sat there with my mouth open like everything I've been taught is a lie and (laughs) he sort of just showed that on the questionnaire required to get your personality type and then on the questionnaire required to diagnose you with like a personality disorder people respond differently purely based on how the item is worded and the way the item might be even ordered so it could be that the if we switch two of the words around at the end 50% of people respond differently or you know if or if you are stressed when you answer it people are more likely to answer this way but if they're calm when they answer it they answer it like this and that to me shows how subjective and sort of you know easy to bend these diagnoses and beliefs are right but then the other thing that happened was that there was a longitudinal study which don't happen very often because people need a lot of money for what's called lifespan studies to follow a group of people for like 60 years Mm -hmm. there was a lifespan study that found that if you retest people's personality so-called personality throughout their life it changes over and over and over and over again which then suggests that the original theories on personality are wrong and that you don't have the same traits forever but like you said because of that training that he gave me and the, the time I spent with him just like picking everything apart I remember coming away from it and being like but if there's personality disorders there must be an optimum personality that psychiatry is measuring you against mm. so give me the criteria of an optimum personality and then also your personality is socially culturally and historically situated so my personality now would probably mean if i was around the witch trials i'd be fucking dead oh yeah me too mate me too (laughs) also my personality now means that if i was around around the time of hysteria and wandering womb syndrome i'd probably be in an asylum Uh yeah but also even now so 2022 my personality wouldn't be accepted in several cultures, religions, communities around the world right now. It would be seen as an illness or possession or a disorder or even like abrasive, assertive, rude, offensive to to be the way I am, like the way I talk or whatever, the way I look, uh, the way I act and so on. So what is the optimum personality they're measuring us all against and who decides what is disordered and what isn't and interestingly i often say the same thing about grief did you see about grief disorder being added to the dsm look jess you're allowed to grieve but there's a a limit yeah well my like reverse question to that if i could meet those people that added that in they're saying if you grieve for more than six weeks it's a mental illness right (laughs) yeah my question is actually the other way around is that can you grieve too little so what if you don't fucking like the person yeah. and you don't grieve enough? Is that a disorder or is it just if it goes on too long? Like what if you've grieved for a week and you've had enough and then you're done 
is that a disorder or is that okay? Where are the boundaries? It's so Western and white, all of these theories, all of these disorders in inverted commas, that, you know, it basically the, the metric seems to be, would someone talking about this make me feel uncomfortable at a dinner party? In that case, it's a disorder. Yeah, basically, because there's that bit, that bit in the book, isn't there, that I wrote about funerals, like funeral etiquette, that if you're at a, a white Western funeral and you, like, cry too loud and, like, fall on the floor and, like, you're crying and you're... In a way, a lot of white Western, I could say, like, especially British people would be like, God, they're causing a scene, like, they're attention-seeking. Yeah. Imagine they're just quieting down a bit, God, like, you know. But in other cultures around the world, showing your emotion at a funeral and crying and and screaming and wailing especially wailing traditional wailing at funerals is completely normal to the point where in some cultures and communities they hire wailers so it's a it's a normal part of a funeral you would hire women that come and wail at the funeral for you because that's normal it's a way of expressing that you've lost somebody so how dare we then set this standard of human thought and behavior i think it's so arrogant that is a very good word for it everything we've talked about so far fits into the medical model of mental health which is the one kind of mode that we're all sat within listeners this all seems unbelievably bleak but my guest isn't one for throwing up problems without solutions jess talk to me about trauma-informed response to mental health Okay, so we have an alternative to the medical model, which is the trauma-informed model. And it's just a a more human way of understanding so-called mental health diagnoses and mental health issues or whatever you want to call them. The trauma-informed model, in its truest sense, rejects labelling medication, pathologisation and any form of oppression uh, or discrimination. And instead, what we would do, so like for me as a trauma-informed psychologist, the way I would look at I don't know, let's say a, a woman and she is, um, her behavior is very strange at the moment and she seems to have changed. She isn't sleeping properly. She's self-harming. She tells me that she wants to die, that she's had enough. She's depressed. She's anxious. She's scared of everything. I don't know. She's changed the way she dresses. She's cut all her hair off. Like something that would look enough that people would go, wow, she needs sectioning. A trauma-informed psychologist would actually just sit with that person and say, what has happened like when did this change and why do you feel like that and what has somebody done to you is there something wrong is there something going on in your life Mm -hmm. that you know a trauma-informed perspective would be that all changes in human behavior have a purpose and a root cause and if you just fucking sit and listen you'll find out what they are i have never ever come across a case yet that i can't solve in an hour like it's not difficult listen to humans they tell you what's wrong even the ones that can't tell you because they're not ready to tell you it's so obvious when there's something that's happened to them that something is wrong they don't have to verbalize it all the time so a trauma-informed model it doesn't always just rely on one-off traumas because people get that wrong and think you know some people will be listening to this thinking well i have a mental health issue and i've never been raped i don't know my mum and dad aren't dead and you know i've not had a massive trauma happen to me but a trauma-informed model also accepts and acknowledges that the world is traumatic it's distressing you live in a capitalist society you are constantly in a fucking rat race that you can't win you have relationship breakdowns you have issues with your family you might be subjected to discrimination inequality social oppression you could be living in poverty that is a fucking trauma in itself 
it's hard. The world is hard. Life is hard. You could be being bullied at work. You could be struggling with your sexuality or your identity. There's all sorts of things that could be happening for you that are traumatizing you and you don't even realize that that's what's happening. Mm. And then your behavior starts changing. Your thought patterns start changing. Your emotions and your well-being starts changing. And before you know it, someone starts to suggest, I think you're depressed. I think you're anxious. I think this is wrong with you. So a trauma-informed perspective is a way of working with humans without suggesting there's something wrong with that reaction or response. So every single mental health diagnosis you can possibly think of and the criteria, the the so-called symptoms, a trauma-informed model would split that into either a trauma response or a coping mechanism. So if you think, you know, flashbacks, for example, are a trauma response. Palpitations are a trauma response. Headaches all the time are a trauma response. Feeling scared is a trauma response. Feeling very low all the time is a trauma response. Coping mechanisms are the things that you do to try and cope with your trauma response, which Mm -hmm. is, it might be isolating yourself, withdrawing, breaking off your relationships, drinking, drugs. It might be going to the gym all the time. It might be throwing yourself into work, becoming a perfectionist. So your behavior changes to cope with what you've been through. So like a trauma-informed model, in my perspective, is actually very, very simple and very, very human. One of the reasons I think people criticize it and struggle with it is because it almost feels too simple after they've been told there's all these diagnoses and brain chemical imbalances and all that and then they're sort of going right so all that's wrong is it and you're sat here just telling me it's because of the stuff i've lived through i'm like yes that's that's exactly what i'm telling Mm -hmm. you yeah so it does feel a little bit i think people kind of aren't ready sometimes for a real human response they're used to being medicalized they're not used to someone you know a lot of the times if i'm talking to a woman or girl i'll just say to them yeah god it sounds like you've been through some shit like you've been through a lot of shit that's not been your fault you know you've this has happened to you this guy did this your mum said this to you and now you've got this and then you got sacked and all this other stuff happened to you and that is a lot of stuff to process I totally understand why you now feel like this I think I would feel the same way and you wouldn't believe how many women just look at you and like oh my god nobody's ever said that to me everybody just keeps telling me I'm mental yeah that shouldn't be right should it no no not at all I totally agree with you and one last question I wanted to ask you because it is what you're asking and what it it clearly needs to happen is a pretty huge shift right yeah and you have spoken to a lot of women and a few men for sexy but psycho including women who have been royally fucked over by psychiatry and professionals in mental health and all of the testimonies are incredibly moving but with regards to the mental health professionals, you have respected their requests for anonymity. And I don't think you were surprised that they made that request, were you? No, I wasn't at all, because there are loads of professionals working right now in psychology, mental health and psychiatry that are up against this every day. They know what they see on their wards. They know they're watching teenage girls come in and get injected with tranquilizers, chemically restrained and shoved in a bed for weeks. They know that girls are being gaslit, that women are being told it's all in your head when they're coming in saying their partners are abusing them. And so there are professionals out there that are really struggling with the system they actually work in but they also know that if they speak out they'll get sacked Mm. like there is a real risk here professionals are saying oh if I say anything they'll sack me they won't listen to me or they won't promote me or whatever it is and already I've spoken to some professionals that have said to me 
they're one of the only people on their ward or in their mental health facility that actually sits and listens to the women and sits and listens to their life experiences. And they'll be told off by the doctors and told, oh, she's wrapping you around a little finger. She's manipulating you, you know. That's why she sits and tells you all these things. So professionals are being told, keep them at arm's length. They're dangerous. Don't tell them anything about yourself, you know. So when you've got professionals going, well, no, I think they need, she needs to offload. She needs somebody to listen to her. She, there's nothing wrong with her she's just extremely traumatized you can often get professionals arguing about that where you'll have one going no she's mentally ill and the other one going no she's not she was raped six weeks ago doesn't look like she's trying to deal with it all we shouldn't be putting her on antipsychotics and sedatives and giving her a load of diazepam every time she has a panic attack so yeah it's quite risky for professionals at the moment but i know that there's enough of them I know because of the work that I do and I have massive social media following. Professionals contact me all the time for a chat. I know that people are waiting for this change. They need somebody to create the platform and then they can push the change using the evidence. I hope that I can start that because I would really like to see some significant change in the next decade or so. And I'm quite happy to be the person whose head's on the chopping block for that. It's such an important read. And listeners, I will say that, I mean, it is, it's heavy stuff. It's really important stuff. It's moving stuff. It made me cry. It made me fucking furious. But I tell you what, she's snarky as this one. And she also made me laugh out loud a couple of times too. It's actually, for the subject matter, it's a really easy read. And it is published by Constable on March the 10th, but available for pre-order. And you should do that. Jess, you mentioned that you are the woman with the head on the chopping block and the platform. So where can people find out more about what you're up to? I run a company that works all over the world to create systemic change, which is Victim Focus. And we're at victimfocus.org.uk. You can go and read all about what me and my team do. Happy fifth birthday. Oh, yeah, I know. We're five. Woo-hoo, yeah, and I can't believe it. Five years already. There's lots of free stuff on there. So there's self-help resources. If you've ever been subjected to violence and abuse, there's a completely anonymous free course on there you can take to process your own stuff in your own time. Lots of free research and stuff that you can learn about. But also on the social media, I'm on pretty much everything under Dr. Jess Taylor, if you come and find me. It is a cesspit. Please don't get involved in <laughs> a trolls giving me shit. It won't get you anywhere and you won't win. <laughs> I, I think join in and support Jess, which I've done a few times because they are fucking horrible. But they're also, they just seem like sad individuals a lot of the time. They're very samey. Sometimes I wonder if all the trolls that have ever gone at me are just one person. Because <laughs> they say the same things over and over again. Well, that means that your responses are down pat now. And you laugh at them, which I think is a very, very good move. Jess, as ever, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.